Hi, my name is Sam Wilms, and welcome to part two of episode number 15 of my 60s music podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. Welcome all you to episode part two of episode number 15 of my 60s music podcast, the Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and for those of you who are just now discovering this podcast, either on the Apple Podcast app or on Stitcher or on iHeartRadio, and you're wondering, so what the heck is this? Well, I'm just give you a brief description of what the show is all about. Okay, so I'm Sam Williams. I'm a 22-year-old songwriter slash producer, but I'm also a huge 60s music fan slash expert slash nerd. And each week with this podcast, I review one song, one artist from the 60s, and first talk about my opinion of the song and why I think it sucks or why I think it's so good, and then do my own personal analysis on the arrangement, which will include the um, the chords, melody, and lyrics for the song. And then I dive into the history behind it, which will include like who wrote it, who produced it, who played it, and all the behind-the-scenes details in each record I talk about each week and all the people and places involved in the making of the record. This week's episode is going to be a two-parter. I already put out part one, which was my opinion on the song and my analysis on the arrangement, the chords, melody, and lyrics. Part two, which is this week's episode, is going to be the history behind the song. So, in this week's episode, I'm going to talk about like how the band was formed and sort of their historical significance in pop music and like how the band kind of was formed, how they got their first hit, and also how they kind of fell apart. So, that's this is what I'm going to be doing in this week's episode of the show. Um, so the, the song we did last week was a Bo Barmo's Laugh Laugh. Well, I'm still going to be doing that song for this week's episode of the show, except that this episode is going to be focusing on the history behind the track. Whereas last episode, which is part one, my opinion on the song, you guys can go check that out whenever you get the chance. But this one's going to be all about the history behind it. Well, let's talk about the history behind this band, the Bo Brummels and their song Laugh Laugh, which the song I'm reviewing in part one and part two of this episode of this podcast. Because you probably never heard of this group before, and even though they didn't have a whole lot of hits, I mean, let's face it, they only had three singles that made the Billboard Top 40. Uh, but besides that, they still had a strong musical historical significance in many ways. And we'll get into that in part two of this two-part episode of the podcast. But first, we need to talk about the British Invasion. Because if it hadn't been for the British Invasion, there's a good chance there that this band would have never existed. When the Beatles led the wave of the humongous amount of British bands that hit the charts all at once like a ton of bricks in 1964, all of a sudden American bands are springing up like weeds who are trying their best to emulate the sound of these British bands. But really, in terms of self-contained bands in 1964, there really wasn't any American bands that were successfully able to copy the sound of the British bands, almost to the point that if I didn't tell you they were an American group, you would have rightfully assumed they were British. Because groups like the Four Seasons and the Beach Boys, who by the way were American, were really holding their own with their own unique arrangements and vocal harmonies that were in no way trying to sound like any of the British bands. And the African American groups and singers, the ones signed to Motown and the ones based in Chicago, we're also trying not to step on the British bands and copy what they are doing. But this band in particular really, was arguably the first American band to really successfully match the sound of the British Invasion bands 
almost to the point that if I didn't tell you they're originally from San Francisco, you would have thought that they are from Manchester or Newcastle or any small city in the UK. And a lot of people at the time mistook this band as a British band, even though they definitely were not from the UK. In fact, uh, the two guys, promotion guys for the label, um, spread rumors about this group to people and tried to trick people into thinking that they were British, but even though they weren't. And they did it before any other band could do it because their first hit single was released in December of 1964, right before the bird stepped inside the studio to cut Mr. Tambourine Man and become the fir- one of the first folk rock bands to respond to the Brits. These guys did it first, back when the British invasion was in full force and, their- and the competition was very, very real in terms of the Brits versus the Americans. But really, even their name sounds British, but because of that, but besides that, one other really historically important aspect of this band is that they were the first band from the San Francisco Bay Area to have a national top 40 hit on the Billboard chart. Now, that little fact might not mean anything to you, but the reason why this is so important was because in just a few short years, in the late 60s, there was uh, this other band that came from the same barrier, Bay Area music scene known as Jefferson Airplane, that became the first rock band to have a female singer, and they also managed to have two really big top 40 hits in 1967, Somebody Love and White Rabbit. And they literally led the wave of the Bay Area bands to become extremely popular in the U.S., especially on FM radio, with groups such as the Grateful Dead and the Velvet Underground and Country Joe and the Fish and Moby Grape and Quicksilver Messenger Service. But when you think about it, This band, on the other hand, the Bo Brummels, got to the charts before all those bands put together. And they were literally the first band from that Bay Area music scene to emerge onto the pop charts. And also, in just a few short years, San Francisco would become the place to be at in 1967, especially during the summertime, due to the Haight-Ashbury hippie movement and free love movement happening there, which consisted of a lot of drug doing by young people, but that's another story for another podcast. The point is, is the band, this band became popular before any of those historical events took place. And, a real, and they were a real per- precursor for what was to come. And also, there really was only one other artist from San Francisco to have hits in America before the Bo Brummels. And that was Bobby Freeman with Do You Want to Dance and Come On and Swim. But then again, he was a solo R&B singer, while the Bo Brummels were a self-contained pop folk rock band. But really, the group's story all starts out with the band's lead singer, Sal Valentino. He was offered a steady-paying gig at a club in San Francisco called El Cid. And when he realized he needed to play that gig with the band, he made a call to a childhood friend of his named Ron Elliott, who became the first other member of their group besides him playing lead guitar. Ron then brought in the other members of the band, John Peterson on drums, Declan Mulligan on rhythm guitar, and Ron Meager on bass. Once the main lineup was formed, they began to play together at their gig in El Cid, and that gig in El Cid led them to a much higher level gig at the Morocco Room in San Mateo, California. And keep in mind, these aren't the same clubs that are located in the east side of LA now. They just coincidentally have the same names as the live music venues on the east side of LA now, or at least they're located there. But anyways, getting that gig led them to be signed to Autumn Records by the company's A&R men, Tom Donahue and Bobby Mitchell. 
because the owner of the club invited both those guys to see them at the club and it was then that they got signed to the label after that happened. And by the way, the owner of the Morocco room was a guy named Rich Romanello. So you gotta keep in mind, in the 60s, we were living in an era where unlike now, it wasn't an uncommon occurrence for a completely unknown band to be signed to a label and be discovered by them if they didn't have a major national following. Instagram and Facebook didn't even exist back in those days. So artists and bands were signed to labels simply because the A&R guys believed in the artists and wanted them wanted to help them out. Not because of how many Instagram or Facebook followers or group had. Because heck, none of those things existed back then. Artists were signed not because of how well known they were and how much work they put into their craft before they got signed. They were signed because the A&R guys saw something in them that other people couldn't see. And a lot of times they firmly believed that this band or artist could have hit potential, even though they might not have had an already proven track record of hits or record sales or radio airplay or packed small venues across the country before they took notice of them. Heck, some bands that were signed back then, and a lot of times they haven't even set foot inside of professional recording studios in their life before they got signed. And this was the case of the Bone Brummels. When they were signed to Autumn Records, they didn't even have a name. And that's how early this early in the stages of the group's career they were. They call themselves the Bone Brummels because the name sounded British, and they knew that since the British invasion was happening at that time, the British sounding name would increase the likelihood of them getting on the charts. And it's also noteworthy to mention that Bo Brummel was a historical figure in British history. So they picked out that name because of that, and it just sounded good to them, according to their lead singer, Sal Valentino. When they were signed to Autumn Records, the label assigned them a producer, a young man named Sylvester Stewart. Who was Sylvester Stewart? Well, he was a young San Francisco-based DJ who just became an A&R man for Autumn Records, um, who previously produced a big hit for his San Francisco artist, Bobby Freeman, that song being Come On and Swim. In two short years, Sylvester Stewart would acquire the stage name Sly Stone and form the band Sly and the Family Stone. But for now, he was producing songs for the San Francisco band known as the Bo Brummels, and he was also a DJ for San Francisco soul station K-Soul. At the time, he was just 19, 20 years old when he was producing the band, and he was the guy in San Francisco who knew how to make records in the studio. There was nobody else before him. He was a real cheerleader for the band and could help them out in many different ways and and can play everything for them if they needed to. And getting back to the Bo Brummels, Ron Elliott was the one who wrote this song and all the band's early hit material. Ron was influenced by several different genres of music to create this really unique song. From Tin Pan Alley songwriters George Ivan Gershwin and country singers like Lefty Frizzell, these are just some of the artists he pulled from to create the song and many other Bo Brummel's classics. They recorded this track at Golden State Recorders in San Francisco with Declan Mulligan, the group's serving guitar player, playing harmonica. The song was released in December of 1964 and it climbed the charts in January of 1965, peaking at number 15th. They managed to have a stronger follow-up, just a little, which peaked at number 8 in June of that year. But after that, they also became the first band to appear on the animated sitcom The Flintstones, 
And at the time when they appeared on that show, they were called the Bo Brummel Stones. And once they recorded their second album, Declan Mulligan left the band and Sly Stone was no longer involved as producer of the group. And Ron Elliott was developing some epileptic issues and was also replaced on the road by another musician. The band also went from being on to- being from Autumn Records to Warner Brothers Records and, re- and releasing a few more critically acclaimed albums on that label that tanked commercially. And by this time, the drummer left to go join another band also signed to Warner Brothers called Harper's Bazaar. And we'll review an episode, uh, a song of theirs, another episode of this podcast. Um, but anyways, um, the group, by this time, the group was just a duo with Ron Elliott and Sal Valentino and whoever they can get as session musicians to play on their album. One of those albums was an early example of country rock being Bradley's Barn. Around that same time, the Bridge released Sweetheart of the Rodeo, which is another really early example of country rock. And this all came out like in 1968. They continued on for a few years, but they eventually broke up. But then they reunited several years later in 2013 for one last album with the existing surviving original members playing on it. So that concludes episode part two of episode number 15 of my 60s music podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and if you like the song I reviewed in this week's episode of the show, or you want to give me some feedback on my podcast and the way I'm talking to my shows, if I'm talking too fast or if I'm talking too slow or if my talking speed is just fine and if you like what i'm putting out you can uh you can email me at sam at hickeywilliams.com and again at sam at hickeywilliams.com if i turn you on to something you've never heard before uh then please do don't be afraid to reach out to me let me know that you can email at sam at hickeywilliams.com you can also follow me on instagram and and reach out to me via that way too at iheartoldies and you can also check out more of my original music at samwilliamsmusic.net. Alright, so thank you for joining me for this week's episode of the podcast. I'm Sam Williams, and until next week, please keep things busy.